Please join me in the prayer for illumination. Let us pray. Gracious God, may your messages and preaching come to us through your Holy Spirit's power so that our faith may not rest on our own ability, but rather by your power and presence. Help us never to depend upon our own might or power, but always upon your spirit. By your son's name we pray, amen. Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 12, verse one through nine. Hear these words. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took his wife, Sari, and his brother's son, Lot, and all the possessions that they had gathered and the persons whom they had acquired in Haran. And they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. When they had come to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he moved on to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and invoked the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on by stages toward the Negev. The word of God for the people of God. I have to say I've been excited about this sermon series for a while. Uh, it's been in the, the back of my mind as an opportunity just to talk, to talk about our families, to talk about the Bible, uh, to talk about these issues around um, thinking that we are or aren't picture perfect. Um, and so I'm excited that it's come. Um, we'll be spending time over the next three weeks uh, talking about families in the Bible. Um, and then also kind of talking about our own families, uh, finding a way together to see um, how God's grace works um, and what God requires. Uh, um, so are you familiar with this phrase, a curated experience? Does that make sense? A curated experience. Um, this could be when you go to a museum, the folk in the museum they don't wanna give you all of the stuff that's in the back archives. And so they curate an experience for you. They, they pull together particular resources, particular artifacts, and um, they want you to get the story without maybe having to wade through all of the pieces. A curated experience. Um, you're familiar with uh, some of the restaurants in town that'll uh, serve you a flight of wine, right? That's a curated experience. I was excited to find a restaurant in Houston that'll give you a flight of bacon. <laughs> That's a curated experience. I do love y'all. Um, I was just going to keep going and like assume you didn't get it. 
So um, what's interesting is when we start looking at the benefits and uh, consequences of social media, we find that they often are linked to our choice to present ourselves with a curated experience. Right, if we put everything on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram about our lives, then we would be uninteresting to everyone, right? No one wants to know, right? Because we're all dealing with those same ups and downs. Really, when you go on social media, all you hear is how their children are idyllic and how their house is always clean. And when they make brownies, they are always beautiful, homemade, and gourmet. Are, are you familiar with this effect of social media? It's called a curated experience. It is the, um, it is the aspect of social media that is most likely uh, to be responsible to the high rate of depression for those who seem to be stuck in social media. It's that curated experience. Now, uh, growing up, before I was a pastor, I assumed about the pastors and people who worked at the church um, that they were perfect. I assumed that in the Bible, that people who were chosen by God, that they had to have some fancy element of holiness to them. But really what I found is that I just had a curated experience. When I came to the realization that folk are just like me, that uh, especially when I was ordained, I, I was really expecting there to be something fancy that would happen that would make me a little bit better than I actually was. You know, this curated experience. I remember growing up, but we project onto people, right? Um, that's the kind of psychological phrase here is that we project onto people the perfections that we think we should have, but that we don't. I remember sitting next to a girl throughout junior high and into high school. Um, sh she was smart and she was nice and um, she was on the drill team and she was all these wonderful things, right? Remember I was the vice president of chess club and I played the tuba? <laughs> I was a catch. Um, <laughs> and she never ever talked to me. And I just assumed that she was one of those hoity-toity whatever kind of girl and she wasn't ever going to talk to me until I found out at our reunion that she had a high level of social anxiety. She didn't talk to anybody. Right? We project onto people that, that we think that they are better or that they've got it together, right? Uh, that kind of idea. I remember learning about curated experiences when I was young because my mom would tell me now, remember, we don't talk about this at church. Ooh, <laughs> that's interesting, right? Do you remember there are certain things that polite company you didn't talk about, even though it was real experience in your lives? Curated experience. As we talk today about um, Abraham in the Bible, um, I realized after the early service when somebody asked me if Abram and Abraham were the same person, aha, I should probably do some teaching on this. Yeah, so Abraham is uh, the gentleman who lives in Ur um, of the Chaldeans. It's down by present-day Kuwait. It was a harbor city, uh, wonderful place. Um, it, he was called by God to go to the promised land. Uh, his name was Abram at the time. And uh, Abram was told by God that I'm the living God, I'm the God of everything. Abram said, really? I thought there was only gods of frogs and gods of the sky and gods of storms. And God said, no, I'm the God of everything and I'm sending you. And if you'll say yes, through you I will bless all families um, that your uh, descendants will be as numerous as the sands of the sea. Abram agrees, and in the process of agreeing with this new start and a 600-mile journey, 
uh, Abram gets a new name. He becomes Abraham, which we hear about Abraham often in the Old Testament. We identify God often in the Old Testament. It says um, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? So just giving you a little bit of an idea of where Abraham is. Now, Abraham's responsible for a whole lot of good. And so it'd be easy for us to assume that Abraham's got all of his stuff together. So just a quick, you know, easy question. Don't stress out about your answer. Um, do you think Abraham uh, grew up knowing about the living God? Or do you think he was some polytheistic hedonist? That? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Tony. Yeah, that, the second one, right? Um, you know, do you think when he got called, he was like, yep, let's go, immediately, within the first couple of months, he leaves on a 600-mile journey, or did he take uh, what scholars think is 6 to 15 years to decide? Yeah, that, as, as Tony says, right? I mean, it's interesting when we start thinking about Abraham, we, we start realizing, hey, wait, have I had a, a curated experience of what biblical families are like? It's easy to assume that that picture-perfect idea must be true for the Bible, for the biblical families, and so therefore it must be true for my family as well. I've told you about my uh, crazy family tree. Um, it is creative and interesting. And uh, my dad's side of the family comes from New Jersey. They're uh, Italian-Americans. Uh, that, that was the side of the family where uh, the mafia was considered a, um, a heritage society. <laughs> if you Google Peter Camerano, it's not me, but somebody's gone to jail with my name, right? <laughs> Um, and do you know how my family, uh, that side of the family, got over to the United States from Europe? It was a crafty, stowaway child, an orphan, who snuck on a boat in the 1900s and came over through um, uh, Manhattan in that area. It's fascinating, right? I mean, do we talk about those things in public? Only if you're on Ancestry.com. My mother's side of the family, um, they're, they're much more uh, traditioned and older, right? I love it when people ask me if my family um, is part of the uh, uh, sons and daughters of um, the American Revolution. I think that's hilarious, right? We are not tea-sipping folk. Um, my mom's side of the family came over because um, one side or both of the American Revolution required mercenaries. And so um, my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was a, a Prussian mercenary who was brought over to fight in the battle. I'm not going to tell you what side. Um, right, but like crazy family trees. And, and how do we get where we are? And, and it's funny just to say, if we talk about going over an ocean to get here, that's like a whole set of expectations about who your people are, right? If you flew a plane, you know, much different. All right, so I want to tell you a little bit about, um, about Abraham. Um, so Abraham did not grow up in a hick town. A Abraham's town was huge. It was a harbor city. It had two harbors. It was right there, um, 75 miles north of the Kuwaiti border inside Iraq. At that time, the coastline was deeper up into Iraq. Um, it was such an important city that it had walls around the city, 30 feet tall. You remember in Genesis where we talk about the Tower of Babel? Most scholars say that's a ziggurat. It's, a, it, it's kind of one of these square pyramids that goes up. Ur had a 70-foot, three-platform ziggurat. 
This is good. I mean, he comes from a good town, right? Um, when archaeologists work to figure out more about Ur, they find out that there is gold jewelry and objects, gold inlaid musical instruments. Pretty cool, huh, David Hill? Uh, colorful mosaics illustrating civil and military life. And on top of that ziggurat was a number of shrines to various moon gods and goddesses. In fact, archaeologists feel that Abram and Sarai, uh, Sarah, uh, Abram's wife, were probably named for figures within this polytheistic pantheon, named after hedonistic gods. Uh, when we look at Abram and Sarai himself, right, so they come from a really wonderful town with lots of power and, and influence and business, and, and they're named after these polytheistic gods. And then also we find that it's quite possible that Abram and Sarai were half-brother and half-sister. That's a good scandal that'll get you talking at Ancestry.com. Not to mention that as you go up the family tree, they've got murderers, they've got numbers of folks who are strange, right? Cain and Abel, if you don't forget. So I wonder what it's like to be Abram and Sarai. Oh, I need to tell you that Sarai was barren. So, so she was unable to have children. And in an ancient Near Eastern culture, uh, one of the most important obligations that you have as a family to your tribe and your nation is to have as many children as possible. It's good for religion, it's good for the military, and it's good for the economy. But Sarai, Sarai was barren. Now, when we talk about Abram's uh, uh, name, Abram's name uh, translates into the eternal father. Could you imagine being the 30-year-old Abram walking around the streets of Ur, uh, getting, uh, you know, introducing yourself to people, yes, my name is the eternal father, and they say, well, how many kids do you have? Zero. Right, so there is some suffering and difficulty in Abram and Sarai's life. So if you were imagining that these would be perfect people headed on a perfect journey, that's kind of humorous. When God finally uh, calls Abram, um, it, he, he tells Abram three easy steps to a happy life of accepting the call. <laughs> he calls him to uh, leave Ur, his hometown, and take, uh, leave his relatives as well, take everything he owns, and go to a very specific land that's roughly 600 miles away. There are no Ubers, there are no airlines, there are no trains. And this journey that he takes, um, the shortest distance would have been across the desert, but, but no, he's got to go all the way up through Babylon, up through the Euphrates River, up to Haran, and then down Haran into the, um, uh, the uh, land of, the, of Canaanites. Along the way into the land of Canaanites, they go further down south, but uh, God stops them in the land of Canaan and says, hey, I want you to know, when I bless you, this will be your land. It's like God's doing like an object lesson. I don't know if you've ever taken the, the, the car trip with the family to grandma's house and you stop along the way and say, this was the hospital where I was born or whichever. Yeah, yeah, that's one of these. But what's funny is that the land of Canaan was not empty. It was filled with Canaanites. As they continued to travel and find their place Abram's, um, he's not just from a big town, he's not just a polytheistic hedonist, he's not just, you know, married to his half-sister, but occasionally he'd come upon uh, folk who were much more powerful than him, and uh, he would lie about whether his wife was his wife or his sister. 
This is convenient because, you know, when more powerful people think your wife's attractive, they just kill you and they take the wife with you, with them, right? And so, so he lies. And really, when you start looking down the family tree over the next couple of weeks, we're going to find that some of these patterns of favoritism, of lying, of the barrenness of Sarai begin to play out in their family that affects them for generations. All the way down to uh, Isaac and Jacob and Esau. Remember, Jacob uh, steals Esau's inheritance. That's a pretty good scandal. And then further down the line, all of this favoritism results in, you know that guy that had a Broadway musical written after him, Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat? Yeah, real story. So the favoritism of the father for the son ends up resulting in all of Joseph's brothers being so unhappy with him that they throw him in a pit, carve up his jacket, spill animal blood on it, sell Joseph into slavery with some an Egyptian caravan that's headed to Egypt, and then go back and tell dad, ha, your favorite's dead. I mean, biblical people are perfect, right? And, and you know, do, do you see that this kind of projection that we assume that the people that God uses are always, you know, they walk 10 feet off the ground and there's um, uh, unicorns and fairies floating around them and they smile all the time and no bad things ever come to them is just darn false, right? And so uh, my hope here is to paint a picture over the next three weeks of the dysfunction that exists, not just in uh, um, biblical families, but also in ours. I, I find it really interesting. Once uh, God has called Abram, it takes him between six and 15 years to actually start the journey. And even then in the scripture you saw at the end, it says, and he continued by stages. I think that's the biblical way to say he was a little resistant and disobedient to get to the Negev. Um, one of the, uh, some scholars say, that one of the reasons why it takes him so long is after God calls him and he says yes, that um, his, uh, his other remaining brothers and sisters die. And his father comes to him when he says, I'm gonna move 600 miles away and leave you. And his father says, don't go, D don't go. You, you are so much more precious to me now that your siblings are dead. How in the world will I go on without you? Right? Have you ever felt like uh, God had called you to do something real specific? And if it weren't for those darn family members who keep saying, you can't go that far, don't leave us. Some of you are giggling. I think there's a story there. So it's a powerful thing to realize that Abraham didn't just magically teleport himself to Canaan, but rather it was a 600 mile journey that he had uh, parents that didn't want him go, that he had opportunities to be truthful and to lie, uh, to bring everything that he had to bear on this amazing calling that God had for him. I have a little theory, we'll talk about it in a couple of weeks, um, that Abraham wasn't the first person God asked. I, I'm just saying, right? Because I mean, it's pretty weird, right? I'm the God of all living things, well, great, can I see where your temple is? Don't have a temple, you worship me where I am. Right, well, um, can I go to your city? Because the most gods had a city. Nope, don't have a city, you're gonna build me a kingdom. Oh, who are your people? You. I mean, this is not a growth opportunity for whoever accepts the call. 
Um, it's a terrifying opportunity. So what if Abraham is the last one who finally said yes? I mean, my mom used to tell me that when I couldn't find my homework or I couldn't find my car keys, she says, keep looking because it'll always be in the last place where you look. Maybe God found Abraham, the, the person who'd say yes to the call because he kept looking. And the last person that he asked finally said yes. I really wonder, when you think about Abraham, it was not his resume. It was not his pedigree. It was not the way he lived his life. But it was the fact that God called him. What was the thing that made Abraham so pickable? Abraham was pickable because he was willing. And not even like a good willing, right? Not even like a, you know, jump and you ask how high on the way up. No, it took 16 years for him to pack that bag and to head off on the road. Bible says he was uh, 70 years old when he got the call that he'd live for another 210 years in the midst of the journey. Abraham wasn't in a hurry ever. Why do we assume that others are perfect? Why do we assume that people in the Bible are perfect? Why, why do we make this kind of assumption that everybody has their stuff together except for us? That everybody can get to church on time except for us? That everybody balances their checkbook? That everybody has all the required amounts of um, nutritional supplements and 401k and everything else? But we don't. I think we do this, I think we assume, for one reason, because it's an excuse, it's an easy way out. Clearly, I knew it, clearly God's never gonna call me because I can't get my stuff together. Look at all these other people on Facebook who have. It's an easy way out to assume that God's never gonna ask us to do anything, that God's never gonna require much of us because clearly we're not perfect. I don't know. Abraham was just right for the moment. Why was he just right? Because he said yes. Over the next couple of weeks, we'll talk about family dysfunction, biblical history, and our own very lives, and being able to hear the call that God has for us. Because God's called everybody. We just need the opportunity to hear it and to say yes. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.